What do saxophones, plush toys, and Ebola have in common? Episode 17 of the Booterverse. Hey everybody, welcome to the show. It is going to be a great one. We have actor and musician Sonny Burnett with us today, and we couldn't be happier. Judy Scheinbaum answers your questions, and we have a special guest back with us today, Sir Cornwallis Willoughby, to talk about Ebola. All today on this episode of The Booterverse. Today's episode of The Booterverse is brought to you by aluminum cans. Aluminum cans. Sure, they make a lot of noise when thrown at the homeless, but they really do earn you a nickel in Michigan. And now for news in my orbit. In British politics, British politician Lady O. Cathane recently learned that a drone is not just a low humming sound or a male worker bee, but a machine that actually flies around the sky. This realization came not a moment too soon as O. Cathane is chairing the House of Lords Technology Committee tasked with discussing the privacy implications of personal drones. She said that she was horrified when she viewed a certain website that allowed her a bird's-eye view of the roses in her garden. It was just a Google thingy or something, she said, and I have no idea how it was taken because it was obviously taken up there somewhere. It's obviously not a large aircraft doing this, but what it is happening, I have no idea how. She concluded that this knowledge did not leave her feeling secure. Her comments ignited a Twitter firestorm where she battled an angry constituency who berated her for being such a liberal Luddite. Moving from Britain, the Kursk Regional Department of Human Well-Being has outlawed selfies on the grounds that they believe they have been responsible for a head lice epidemic that has swept the Russian district. In a public service announcement, the organization has blamed, quote-unquote, the putting of heads together in front of the mobile phone for the situation, which they likened to the Germans attempting to overrun the Russian army in the 1943 oral salient. This is not the first time the governing body's decisions have proved controversial, however, as its former head, Jenny Onoshenko, once suggested killing crows. As he described them, they were feathered wolves which spread the bird flu. The agency's lice advice has been mocked by social media users in Russia who question the general lousiness of Russian youth. Back in America, politicians should be lucky enough to have spin doctors as good as the ad agency that's making a killing sexing up assassinations. It all started in Dallas, where an image of JFK appeared on city buses along with the tagline, Big Things Happen Here. When the city saw a huge spike in tourism, ads started appearing in other cities. Memphis ran similar ads featuring a picture of Martin Luther King Jr. standing on a balcony along with the slogan, Mornings are beautiful in Memphis. And the Los Angeles Hotel Association bought a series of ads featuring Bobby Kennedy assuring people that, quote unquote, LA will always have a great place for you to stretch out. The agency said that they thought it was a shame that people tend to associate assassinations with only brain matter, funerals, and other unpleasantries. It's a way for people to be happy about things that usually make them sad, said a representative for the Dakota, the former New York City hotel turned co-op apartment building where John Lennon was fatally shot. The Dakota is rumored to have splashed out an undisclosed but significant sum 
on an ad campaign to attract residents showing Lenin and saying, quote unquote, imagine what it would be like to live here. Moving from ads and assassinations to toys, a plush toy made to look like the Ebola virus has gone, well, viral. Connecticut-based manufacturer Giant Microbes has been amazed at how fast the stuffed germs have been flying off the shelves and is struggling to meet the demand. Looking like half a pretzel, the toys come in a micro size or gigantic size. Those wishing to purchase the currently sold out items can go to the company's website and choose Add Ebola to my wish list. This is probably the only time that anyone will ever express that sentiment. And if you just can't wait to own one of these infectious, delightful cuddlies, you can choose from a variety of other maladies, including anthrax, botulism, cholera, and dengue fever. Giant Microbes wants to make it very clear, however, that you don't want the real Ebola, as they were sure to point out that the symptoms include such nasty things as stomach pain, diarrhea, vomiting, massive internal and external bleeding, and typically, death. People are dying to own stuffed viruses, but we don't want them to actually die, said a spokesperson. That would be unfortunate. After all, these are humans, not Build-A-Bears. And that's been it for News in My Orbit. Today's episode of the Booterverse is brought to you by Portable Heaters. Portable Heaters, when you want to be hot in very specific places. Welcome back. Right now we have a special guest with us, the inimitable and lovely Sir Cornwallis Willoughby. Sir Cornwallis hasn't been with us in a while, so we're happy to have him back on the show. Sir Cornwallis, it's great to have you here. Oh yes, hello chap, it's good to be here, Sir Cornwallis at your service. I thought today we might be able to talk about a little Ebola. Now, I'm not talking about that thing that little Goldilocks had when she had the three bears and she ate their porridge out of the bowls. I'm not talking about that sort of thing, my dears. I'm talking about a virus. I remember one time I was on the continent, the subcontinent as it was, and I was hunting with a bunch of Indian refugees. I dare say, those individuals are fearsome fighters. They made me wear a turban and everything under my pith helmet, and I thought... Sir Cornwallis, you could not look more dapper, and indeed I have a portrait hanging above my mantelpiece with that very same pith helmet. It's a lovely visage of me, and I must say, you must come over sometime and see it. But I digress, of course, as one is wont to do on your lovely show. Now, the Ebola. You must, you must, you must avoid it with all pomp and circumstance. There is no golden carriage the Queen rides in that can keep the Ebola away from you if you are contacted. So, don your hazmat suit and your Lord of Arms ermine gowns, because it's time to buckle up, my dears. The Ebola is coming. I must admit, you Americans do get unduly ridiculously out of source when people bring a virus into your country. I live in England. I've lived in Scotland, for heaven's sakes. Do you understand what it's like being in that country where there's viruses upon disease running rampant? The rats alone, the rats alone could drive you to tears. And it's not a fightful going west sort of motif. They spread cholera and dysentery and any form of diuretic that you can find. And it's not the good one to help you lose weight either. I remember my old Aunt Ida. Uh, well, she was Lady Ida Kathleen uh, Buggenbottom. And I dare say she had the dysentery one time so bad. And I swear to the Lord himself, and we say in the Church of England, of course, she was blowing up like, I don't know, things that blow up. She just couldn't 
couldn't keep it together and I dare say that we must hold firm. So if there's any advice that I can give you chaps, it's this. Lysol, Lysol, Lysol. And that's it. Happy Ebola hunting, my dears. And I think that's been a special report on Ebola from Sir Cornwallis Willoughby. We'll be back right after this. Today's episode of the Booterverse is brought to you by Windshield Wipers. Windshield Wipers. There hasn't been this much rubber on glass since Shaquille O'Neal played in the NBA. And now for a segment we like to call The Last Lung with Judy. Judy Scheinbaum, welcome back to the show. Emery, it's so good to see you. Thank you so much for having me on once again. I don't even know what episode this is. I can't even count that high. But let me tell you, dearie, you are doing wonderfully. I love you. Well, thank you, Judy, so much. That means a lot coming from a person like you. Judy, are you ready to answer people's questions? Judy, are you ready to answer people's questions? You betcha, love. Let's just go ahead and do it. Mm. Our first question is from Mavis. Inananata, Alabip. Anonita Anwananta, Alabama. She says, help me convince my husband that hot dogs are not just a summer food. Sweetheart, I live in the city. Hot dogs are food for all year round. When it's, it, when it's snowing in the dead of winter, what do you want more but a, but a dog wrapped in a bun? with a lovely wrapper that brings you hints of holiday joy. Now, sweetheart, I don't eat hot dogs, or at least that's what I tell my rabbi. Mm. But I will say there is a lovely man on Carnegie Street, and he is fabulous. His name is Amir, and I would like you to know that the man cooks up the meanest dog this side of West 6th Street. It's amazing. So, sweetheart, if you need to convince your husband that hot dogs aren't just summer food, just come to the city, call up your good friend Judy, and we'll have dogs over lunch. Our next question is from Chuck from Great Falls, Montana. Oh, I like Montana. I was there once, but that's a story. John Denver and I went, and let me tell you, it was a plane ride to remember. The question says, what is the best way to keep moths out of my sweaters? They keep eating my cardigans. Well, sweetheart, if you're wearing a cardigan, it should be eaten. Cardigans went out in 1992, and I'm not afraid to say it. Seriously, sweetheart, if you wanted to watch a cardigan, go watch 16 Candles. You can see that lovely, red-headed, lovely person, Molly Ringwald. I love her, and I love that movie. It was a sign of the 80s, and by God, she was a vision. But let's not get distracted. A cardigan does not form fit you. What you really need, my dear, is a winter weight muumuu. I tell you, they make them out of wool. It's lovely. It's like wearing an army surplus blanket, and you will not be warmer. It is lovely. It's what you have to do. So throw out the cardigans with the moths and get yourself a wool moo. Oh my, okay. Ooh, this is interesting. Luella. I love that name, Luella. It reminds me of my great aunt from Punxsutawney, but that's another story as well. She's from Phoenix, Arizona, and she says, I just inherited 400 cans of lima beans from a deceased uncle, and I have no idea what to do with them. Suggestions? Sweetheart, I'm not Martha Stewart. I don't know what to do with a bunch of can of green beans. What I would do is give them to the homeless and make sure you have enough knish for the relatives. They're always asking for more. Mm. Oh my goodness, the time is just flying by. Here's our last question from Candy in Skokie, Illinois. Ooh, Skokie. Isn't there a song about that? Il- something Skokie from Makoki or something. I don't know. She asked this two-part a question. She says, do you dye your hair? And what about downstairs grooming? Here's what I have to say about that. Sweetheart, 
If I dyed my hair, I certainly wouldn't let you know. It's some one of those secrets that women have to keep to ourselves. But between you and me, honey, I keep a certain section of the grocery store in business. And I keep a certain lovely young man who may or may not be, you know, <laughs> in business as well. He's a wonderful person. I take my product to his store. He loves me. He says, Judy, thank you so much for coming. I love working on your hair. I said, thank you, Carlos. It's great to be here. What can we do? And he's he judges it up and it's amazing. And I look 12 years younger if I used hair dye, which I can neither confirm nor deny. Now, you asked another very personal question, but I'm Judy, so I'll answer it. What about downstairs grooming? Well, sweetheart, as I've always said, if there's a little grass on the field, who wouldn't want to play? That has been it for the last lung with Judy. I'll see you later, my loves. And we'll be right back after this. Today's episode of the Buddhaverse is brought to you by Solo Cups. Solo Cups, when red and blue mean more than your political affiliation. Well, we are back, and we have a very special interview for you today. I am sitting here with musician, actor, professor, Sonny Burnett. Sonny, it's great to have you on the show. Emery, I'm thrilled that you asked me. I really am surprised that you even know about me. Well, honestly, Sonny, my producer is a worker of magic and knower of many, many things, and she knows you in the sense that she saw you, she thought you would be perfect for us, and we are so glad that you're here. And I didn't exceed the age limit, so that's kind of nice. You know, there is no age limit, and I am a gentleman, so I won't even ask you what that age would be. I, I can't even remember, so I think we're in good shape. <laughs> now, Sonny, let's start at the beginning. Where are you from? Um, actually, originally from Orlando, Florida. And from there, I went to grad school, et cetera, up north, and ended up back in the uh, south and the Carolinas for a decade or so, and then up up here to Kentucky in 1990. So I've been here for a couple of decades. Excellent. Well, we are happy to have you here in the bluegrass. Now, when you began your career, uh, you were a musician, correct? Right. Um, you know, I have degrees in saxophone primarily, you know, music ed, undergraduate, and then graduate degrees in saxophone performance. Mm. Now, do you also play the flute? Is that correct? Yes, I do. Mm -hmm. So some would say I own a flute and sometimes hold it in, in public places and blow into it. Well, I try not to hold things in public places and blow into them, <laughs> but I will say, quick question, flutist, flautist, go. I think if you're in Europe, it would be flautist. If you're in Kentucky, it would be flutist. That's right, because we're in America. Right. So we like them flutists right exactly. around here. That's great. So you are a saxophonist. Um, obviously, saxophones are known for being a very romantic, sultry sort of instrument. What got you started with the sax? Well, it was kind of a break because when I was a young kid, my parents forced me to take organ lessons and I really did not like it at all. I didn't like the music. I didn't like the teacher. I didn't like the instrument. So when I hit seventh grade, you know, I could join the band at school and uh, you know, my dad was very much a music lover. So he always encouraged that, but I was able to swap one for the other in seventh grade. And that was my salvation, really. The saxophone was your salvation. Yes. Mm. Tenor sax. I still remember the serial number of my first tenor sax. Wow. But you just, earlier, I got to talk to Sonny a little bit before the interview. He said he's a man of little memory. And I'll tell you what, if you can remember the serial number <laughs> on that first sax, my friend, there's more going on upstairs than you would let on. Well, but that's probably all I can remember about it. You know? <laughs> Fair enough. 
So you you played uh, the saxophone, and let me just go down, if I may, sure. down the list of some of the people you've played with or for. Uh, Bob Hope, Jerry Lewis, Red Skelton, Ed McMahon, The Temptations, The Four Tops, Lou Rawls, Andre Crouch, uh, and the list goes on. Question, was Ed McMahon drinking when you met him? Not that I know of. I do remember that he was late for the gig. We were playing in Treasure Island, Florida. You know, I was a student at USF, and the trumpet teacher uh, was a contractor, and he actually, you know, used some of the, you know, better students, if I qualified for that, on these gigs. And we were waiting for Ed because his flight was late, I believe. And he finally arrived. I remember uh, my friend was also playing uh, the gig, another sax player, Bob McCarr. And, um, you know, I think Bob was shaking hands with Ed, and, he's, and Ed was apologizing for being late. I said, I said, no problem. Nobody's upset. Bob's kind of been out of shape about it, but, you know, everyone else is fine. And then, you know, I think Bob slugged me in the arm and Ed got a little laugh out of it. So it was fun. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And well, here's Johnny yeah. now. Well, well, it's good, good to be here. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you so much. Uh, uh, it's great. Uh, thank God Ed got some work after me. <laughs> so, uh, did Ed try to get you to join Publishers Clearinghouse? No. Okay. I mean, I know he was yeah. always shilling for them. So. I can't remember if that was before those days or not. You know, this was like early 70s, mid-70s. Mm, the so, psychedelic period. Exactly. Mm. Did you have bell bottoms? I'm afraid I did. I had bell bottom stripes, polyester, paisley shirts. I mean, I would be embarrassed mm. to have any photos from that era. Embarrassed. I'm, I'm wondering if the internet has some that are lurking out there. I hope not. My sisters recently sent me a couple of old pictures, but I think in one I was not even wearing a shirt. I was holding oh. a kitten in the saxophone bell, so oh know, I, was, I was a young lad. Oh, so, wait, you were shirtless with a kitten in a saxophone bell. Is this yes, correct? Yes, yes. Mm, wow. Did you also do glamour shots in the 80s? I don't believe I did. Mm, that would be a great look for you, I think. <laughs> you know, the sort of, you know, lights piercing through the... Oh, man. Mm. I, I think my worst faux pas was, um, it, again, I was at USF playing in the jazz band. I was probably a senior in college. We had this big jazz concert in some major auditorium, and I just decided to buy this really cool Afro shirt because I had this big tenor sax solo, and I thought I was going to be so cool. You know, it was like this big thing with all these African designs and... I mean, again, I'm just embarrassed by that now. But. I No, I like your multiculturalism. You're saying I'm a white man who's ready to step out and support my brothers. It's wonderful. No, it was, it was you being progressive before progressives were progressively progressive. Absolutely. It was lovely. Yeah. Now, man, I, I have to ask Jerry Lewis. I mean, because I, I, I'm fascinated by these old-time comedians. Well, I say old-time. I mean, Jerry's still alive. Yeah. Um. If he heard that, he would string me up by my toes, I'm sure. <laughs> um, did you get to meet him? Did you see him? What is he like in person? Well, I don't recall uh, meeting him personally, but I, I, again, I was in graduate school at the time. He was performing on our campus as part of a, a big show. And um, you know, I just remember that he was very, very funny. And the, the one little comedy bit that I remember from his show was that you know many people were taking flash photos of him. So he, he had a flash camera in his pocket. So he pulled it out and just, you know, like, here's one for you. Oh, wow. So, so he was actually taking A little pictures. sarcastic. Yeah. I mean, mm. it was a joke, you know, like, oh, sure. you know, flash in my face. There's a flash in your yeah. face. Well, and kind of as Jerry does, a little passive aggressive, but we don't need yeah. to get into that. Yeah. Uh, the one I remember as being a real gentleman was uh, Red Skelton. He walked around and shook hands with everybody, you know, sporting a cigar. He was really, really nice. Wow. That's that's great. Were you, did you work on the actual television show that he had or were you, is it just a gig? It, it was did? another gig. You know, we were just backing up his show. So 
the so the flute era for you was small it was you know minuscule compared to the sax and the sax playing uh well the, the problem is as a sax player typically you're kind of a force to double on other instruments you know flutists and clarinetists don't typically have to double although some do but as a, as a sax player if you want to play commercially you pretty much got to double if you're going to be playing any shows hmm. uh, for example the last show i played uh is here in lexington and it was with john o'hurley um Jay Peterman from Seinfeld, and it was really exciting to, you know, be a few feet away from him on stage because the band was on stage. And I think I played uh, soprano sax, tenor sax, piccolo, and mm. something else, maybe clarinet. I can't remember. How does the piccolo feel? Uh, it feels very challenging. I That's been one of my most difficult instruments. You know, the flute comes pretty easily. Piccolo, not so easily. Is it because it's so small? I think so. Or so piercing? Well, so small, and the aperture is very... Um, Finicky, I think. Mm. You, know, you have to have a very small aperture to play the piccolo. Right. It's true. Sounded great. Yeah. The four tops. Love mm. playing with the Temptations and four or, tops. Sorry. Oh, it was four. Yeah, top, it right? was. It was both. Yeah, they were. They were sort of like you know sister groups. Sure. And uh, very often the concerts had both groups on stage and they they shared the stage. You know, sometimes it was separate, and uh, always you know a blast. And um, actually, I also teach history of rock music, and one of the fun things I do when we talk about Motown, I bring in a cowbell and a drumstick. And ask the class, do you have any idea what it was like to sit through a Temptations or Four Tops rehearsal? And then I just bang away on the cowbell and everyone goes deaf. And that's pretty much what the rehearsals are like for horn players. You've got, you know, two to three hours of the leader sitting there with a cowbell and a drumstick, you know, playing, okay, bar 37. Whack, so, whack, whack, whack. But then, this was way before, you know, Blue Oyster Cult uh, made the cowbell exactly. extremely famous. Oh, yeah. So, it, it, again, I showed that clip in class, too, because it's so great. It, it is. Yeah. And, you know, I love the inimitable Christopher Walken. Oh, yeah. Uh, Will Ferrell's in there. Just a hilarious sketch. I got a prescription. <laughs> <laughs> ow. Ow. <laughs> Guys, I wake up. I put my pants on, you know, one leg at a time. Except when I do, I make old records. <laughs> when you transitioned from music, you know, professional performance, and I, obviously you still perform, but w when that was your livelihood, how was that transition? How many years did you do it? Well, let's see. I started really in college, so early 70s, and I'm still, you know, playing occasionally. Um, one of my good friends, Ryan Sherrard, recently moved to New York City. He was really responsible for... Uh, a lot of the shows that were happening in town. And uh, so that's kind of backed off a bit. So, you know, I don't play as often, which is one reason I got into the acting. So, you know, acting is very um, frequent so and very enjoyable. So, Was it hard to give up full-time performance or was it something you readily did? Well, I, I actually haven't given it up. You know, I still perform. In fact, um, last week we had an inauguration week for our new college president and I, ah. I played uh, a piece on soprano sax that I wrote with piano and then um, also played flute with uh, one of our choirs. So, you know, I stay active well, as a yeah. musician as well. Yeah. No, and, and I mean, and I suppose, you know, I suppose when I think of professional musicians in the sense of someone who's touring or oh, yeah, you, know, right. you, you, you get that, you know. Yeah. And so I suppose when I asked the question, that was kind of the, the direction I was going in, not so much that you're not still active, which it's a, it's great that you're able to not only teach, but also be active mm -hmm. still in your craft. And Well, I actually was on the road for a year, like a full year back in the 70s. And um, some of the people in that group, you know, had been on the road for seven or eight years. And of course, that's nothing like the Rolling Stones today. But um, it, it was fun. I got to see most of the country and Canada. We went from um, Florida to Canada regularly. We had a bus with 
it was a double decker bus orange shag carpeting yes but we had bunks and a, a professional driver and i was one of the alternate drivers as was our drummer so so not only are you a saxophone player a flautist a piccolo per- <laughs> percussionist pic- piccolo professional piccolo per- piccolo perfectionist but you also drive a bus i did mm. and the way that happened i was a passenger we were driving down some interstate during the wintertime and I was up there talking to the driver by the front windshield and he just said, he got out of the seat and held the wheel and said, sit down. So that's how my uh, bus driving experience started. <laughs> Without a license, he, <laughs> he went on and he drove. Did you guys stop in Windsor at all? Uh, we went through Windsor many, many times. Oh, yes. Windsor, it's the Atlantic City of Canada. <laughs> and just as clean. <laughs> No, I love Canada. I love Canadians. love maple syrup. Beautiful. Interesting. You were talking about rabbit holes earlier. We once played in Quebec, and the Quebec City Choir um, was part of the show we were playing for. I can't remember what it was. And as a young person, a young saxophone player, very impressionable, on the road for the first time, I was slightly amused and interested by the fact that uh, we were sitting there waiting for this choir to get ready. So all the men and women in the choir came into the room. We were sitting up in sort of a loft area. They all came in and started undressing together. As Canadians. You know those Canadians? French Canadians uh, Right, French Canadians. And and they they thought nothing of it. And I thought, well, you know. Yeah, but they're different cultures. They're different places. When you transitioned into academia, it's got to be a bit of a... A bit of a shock. Or was it easy? Was it just, you know? Well, actually, I think my my two big dreams as a young person, probably in high school, um, were to uh, play on a TV show, you know, as a musician, and also teach college. So what happened was, after graduate school, I couldn't find a job, went to Texas for half a year and played with a band. You know, we traveled around Texas. That kind of fell through. And then I um, went back to Florida. That's how I hooked up with this a gentleman by the name of Thurlow Spur, who had some groups on the road, a number of groups, including uh, one called the Spurlows. When I was in high school, the Spurlows came to our our, uh, school and performed. It was a really fantastic high-energy show. They were sponsored by Chrysler. Mm. They had 18-wheelers and a fleet of Chrysler cars traveling all over the country. (laughs) And, you know, it was a a great musical show, comedy show. Just It was a variety show. It It was wonderful. So I knew about Thurlow. So um, when I couldn't find a job after my master's degree, I was talking to my old high school band director and he told me, oh, Thurlow Spurs in town here. Why don't you go and see him? So I did audition and then I ended up going with uh, one of his groups, you know, which, you know, traveled to Canada and Florida, et cetera. So um, and then eventually Thurlow uh, went to a a Christian broadcasting network. It was actually uh, the old PTL TV network. Okay. You probably remember the scandal. <laughs> oh, that one. Yes, that one. Well, mm, yeah. Jimmy and Tammy Faye. Hallelujah. You, know, uh, you did say you were going to edit the show, right? Oh. Okay. Oh, yes. We will edit it down. <laughs> Only the gems will survive. <laughs> anyway, I, I played with that band for nine years until it folded. So that was dream number one come true. And then you got paid, right? Yes. Okay, great. Yes, got paid. Yeah, yeah. That's good. I just, you know. I mean, everybody likes chickens, right? So. Yeah. And then after that, I thought, well, then I, I was at a private school for two years, and I thought, well, this isn't quite working. I loved, you know, being around K through 12 kids, but I, I got hit in the face with a snowball one day, and I thought, mm. maybe I should think about that college job, which was my other dream. So, mm. you know, I applied to Georgetown College, and it was just the right fit. You know, music theory, woodwinds, and boom, you know, turned the car key, and here I am. Bam. 
So, you know, two dreams. And what was the original question? There is no. It sure is good to be here, Emery. Thank you for inviting me. There is never an original question. There's no Big Bang with me. It's all just a flurry of delightfulness. (laughs) I mean, are people jealous of the saxophone? I mean, because let's be honest, the sax is sexy. I mean, we have to say it. I think it bears saying that when people think and hear the saxophone, they, they think awesomeness. Well, we like to at least keep that, you know, image going as sax players. I mean, the president, the former president of the United States even played the saxophone. Okay, here's my president's stories. Okay, I, I'm, in, I'm in grad school and I thought this would be really funny to offer free saxophone lessons to the U.S. president. You know, I could make a name for myself. And really what I wanted was simply a letter on my wall saying, no, I don't want saxophone lessons. That's what I wanted. So I wrote Jimmy Carter a letter. Um, got a letter back from a staff assistant saying, oh, your thoughtfulness has been well noted. And I thought, well, that's nice, but it's not a letter from Jimmy Carter. Right. So then I, I kept, and Gerald Ford, you know, would you like free saxophone lessons? And, you know, nothing, nothing. Finally, Bill Clinton. I thought, here, here's my lucky day. Yes. I never heard back. Oh. Couldn't believe it. I, but, I want you to know something. I got that letter. So, <laughs> so and it touched my heart. And I'm so sorry that we did not get back to you because... When I think of the saxophone, I think of one thing, hope. Hope, Arkansas, the place of my birth. And I could go into the litany, but you should read my book called My Life, The Bill Clinton Story. I talk about hope and my mama and Hill and Chelsea and America. How so much does it cost? It costs thirty nine ninety five on Amazon.com. But I finally did get one letter. I was reading Reader's Digest one day, and there was uh, some bios from famous people, and you've heard the name Lee Iacocca, no doubt. Oh, of course, yeah. <clears throat> anyway, so as it turns out, Lee Iacocca used to play saxophone in a dance band, and I thought, well, heck, I'll just write Lee Iacocca. So I got a very nice letter back saying, you know, I, I appreciate the offer. You know, I get many such offers, but as, you know, president of Chrysler, I can't, you know, take them up. Uh, and I also wrote uh, Fidel Castro in Cuba, no response. I wrote the People's Council of Transylvania, no response. So, the people know. Transylvania has a People's Council. Apparently, they don't least. have a president or anything. They've just got a People's Council. Well, this was in the seventies, maybe. I well, think. Well, so. I just imagine people in Transylvania walking around and deciding things by pitchfork and torches. <laughs> Could well be. Could very well be. Uh, and, you know, of course, there's that ominous lurking big brother figure high in the tower who only comes out of supposedly at right. night. But yeah. we, don't, we don't need to talk about that. Do you have any other memorable individuals that you just loved being with or playing with or playing for? Well, there was one that I didn't love so much. Oh, yeah. Excellent. Um, I, should I say the name or not? If you're comfortable, we're comfortable. Um, Nelson Riddle Jr., I believe, was the name. Nelson Riddle Jr. Inform the audience who this Nelson Riddle Jr. might have been. Uh, the son of Nelson Riddle Sr. Mm, fair point. Who I believe uh, wrote music for a number of TV shows, et cetera, et cetera. Very, you know, very famous individual. Sure. So it was fun to work with a Nelson Riddle. Sure. Regardless whether it was senior junior or junior. Senior, yeah. So anyway, so I got hired as a freelance saxophone player, and I think this was after the uh, the TV job had terminated for a year or so. So show up to the gig. It was on a college campus in the Carolinas, and I knew a few of the other musicians, uh, the bass player and maybe the drummer, something like that. Hey Terry, how are you doing? We're shaking hands. Uh, Nelson Riddle Jr. 
don't shake hands on the band set because the people here think that we came here on a bus, you know, and, and a few other times throughout the night, you know, don't, don't do that. Cause you know, we, we just arrived on the bus, you know? So he was trying to con the, um, contractor, you know, making him think that we were a band traveling together on the bus. He finally lightened up at the end of the night. He turned out to be very nice, but you know, for, for a number of hours, it wasn't quite that way. Now I'm just going to read off the bio right here. Okay. It said, uh, and worked as a studio musician for a national television, oh, national television broadcaster, and you wrote comedy sketches. Oh, yeah, I did a couple. Um, well, I mean, the PTL place was very fantastic. I mean, there was a big amphitheater. There was a massive campground. There was a community of homes. There was Tammy Faye's makeup trailer. Yes, and she was she was very nice. I mean, it was sad to know that she passed in such a horrible way, but yes. she was she was so cool. Uh, here, here's a Tammy Faye story. I don't know if I can really say this, but you, you you've got <laughs> okay. lips and, and voice and breath. Please, she sir. was great. You know, she used to rehearse with the band every day. She was just a hoot. So one day um, during the chit chat time, you know, every day after the uh, the main show, she would go shopping in the afternoon As with you know with her secretary or some people. Anyway, she was saying, "Well, gosh, yesterday I was shopping with Joyce, and uh, this car full of teenagers spotted us and flipped us the bird." So somebody said, well, Tammy, what did you do? Well, I flipped it right back. So, I mean, <laughs> she was great. You know, it was it was interesting. I, and I, this is sort of the only thing I, I really remember. When she passed, they played a clip of one of her, her later clips, and she talks about sort of the process of coming out of, you know, that horrible saga and what happened and, you know, and how bad she felt about it and, you know, hmm. mea culpa, mea culpa. But she talks about, and and I find this interesting because it seems so disparaging, or not disparaging, so disparate, because she talks about the homosexual community and how they surrounded her and actually made her feel as though she could go on with her life. Because I think at some point she was actually thinking about committing suicide. She was very depressed. And she really was very complimentary and thankful for these groups of individuals who sort of surrounded her and probably would have, you would have never thought that they, you know, would have supported her and been able to kind of come around her and love her. It was just a really interesting testimony that two very different groups of people could, could actually have that bridge and, and, and cross over. That was great. And also their son, um, I think he goes by Jay now. Uh, I always knew him as Jamie Charles, you know, as a young boy. Sure. Uh, his, he's now a minister, I think in maybe Brooklyn. So we're in New York city in that area. Ah, the hipsters. Yes, yes, yes. And um, he, he, his church is a bar and he has lots of tattoos and he's written a book, which I read some years ago. And again, he addresses the gay issue uh, at length and it was very meaningful to me since my son is gay. So, mm. you know. It, it has a, a really interesting sort of connection in terms of faith, people's lives, people's lives and how they become connected in such passionate and 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 strong ways when you never thought that that they would and you know I think if I may say it seems as though the church is dealing better and trying to understand and instead of saying oh this is an issue saying hey these are people right and we're in the business of loving and that's that's an important message I think well, I mean, I think, I think as Christians, we're called to love and, you know, the judging is not for us. 
Right. And, you know, as a, as a father, you, you have a very unique perspective as well, I would imagine. It's been very challenging because, you know, my upbringing was totally the opposite. You know, it, it was that, you know, that was wrong. It was bad. And then after, you know, doing some reading on the subject and um, having a gay son myself, I mean, it's really opened my eyes, you know, to some possibilities I never imagined. Sure. And I, I would think that there are things that we as a society do even subconsciously that we don't think about or aren't even cognizant of, but that can potentially seem demeaning or even demoralizing. Well, right. Even recently, you know, I've seen some um, either videos or whatever um, talking about, you know, people making fun. Oh you, oh, you throw the ball like a girl. You know, it's very demeaning to women, you know, and it's the same kind of thing with gays. I mean, I have a lot of friends, you know, they joke and, you know, um, I'm sure they don't mean any harm by it, but it can be very hurtful and, and demeaning. And and there has to be, you know, I I'm, fancy myself to be a comedian. And so <laughs> for me, there's very little in this world that's not uh, out of bounds. Sure. And, you know, there are there are even things that I I'm very cognizant of. And I and I I will do certain things sometimes just to to push those buttons. Sure. Of course, because, you know, but there, you know, even even talking with individuals, you know, I, I come across everyone from, you know, far right, ultra conservative individuals to the far left and liberal. And, you know, so I have I have this unique opportunity to be with all of these people and the the delightful <laughs> responsibility of trying to make all of them come to a place where they can laugh at something. Yeah. N- including themselves. I mean, I think that's great. I would hope so. Yeah. And, you know, with the bow ties, it's sort of the, the shield because, <laughs> you know, I mean, think about, you know, I can get away with a lot. Wearing a bow tie. <laughs> you have no idea. Well, we have talked faith, music, Bill Clinton, saxophones. Have we piccolos. talked food? I guess we've talked food a little bit. We have. Yeah, are you? Booth. You? Yes. Wait. 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 We're gonna hold. hold, hold okay. The here, here's. You're you're a chef, or you've well, done some okay. chefy things. Yeah. Well, twice I was asked to uh, perform as a chef on the TV show, like Tammy's show. Tammy Faye had an afternoon show that was crazy. She had <laughs> everything ranging from dog weddings to um, penile implants to <laughs> dental surgery or whatever. So uh, one afternoon, you know, I was on on tap for doing a, a, a recipe. So I got, um, I think I'm trying to think of the recipe. I think it was my my wife's grandmother's chili recipe, grandma's chili. Mm. And of course, I had a bunch of funny props and funny still photo inserts and that sort of thing. So it was good. And then, and then on the main show, even when they after the transition, after I think uh, Jim Baker was removed, I was asked to to do another show they were doing some different things and i did a greek uh, pizza recipe on that show so are you greek no we had a good friend who's greek though and um in fact recently she sent us a massive tray of baklava 80 pieces of baklava yes mm. gosh mm. so delicious yes a little phyllo dough put some honey in there indeed yes my mom will do that some from time to time I'm I'm in my I'm an adult. Let's just say that. Don't need to get into my age, but my mother still sends me care packages from time to time. God well, that's her. nice. Oh, very nice. Well, she's in her retirement now, so she has more time to send you packages. Oh dear lord, and call. And you send her laundry, I'm sure. Uh, well, she lives in in Santa Fe, so <laughs> sending laundry to New Mexico a little difficult. Uh, I'm sure. 
one of the parcel services would lose it, and then I would be out myriad of dollars and yeah, finery. Sure. You know, the minks. What would I do? Of course. You know. Oh, yes. Are they coming back? I'm talking. asking my producer. The minks coming back? They're coming back, she says. Maybe you'll get to see me a la, you know, fancy Joe Namath. Pretty boy Joe Namath. Is it a full-length mink? Well, why wouldn't it be? Okay, of course. Come on. Silly question. I'm... I'm no Liberace, but <laughs> we certainly can do our best. <laughs> so, Ackham Edition, Professor, what made you want to go back into acting and performance in that in, in the acting realm? Or, or go, get into it? In well, the- I, th- I think it started with uh, our theater department. Uh, one year, uh, George McGee, our, one of our theater professors, had me um, portray the part of a lawyer in this film that he had done uh, called Doc Doc, which has made some international rounds. And then the next year... Ed Smith um, did a movie, a feature film called Surviving Guthrie about a professor who was uh, drinking, gambling, smoking, cussing, and, you know, they were the administration was trying to get him out. It was, it was a comedy. It was fun. Everything Jim Baker would have abhorred. <laughs> uh, anyway, so I had a, a role in that as a campus cop, and that was a lot of fun. We had a professional crew brought in, you know, Mark Gurevich and his trigger happy productions and it was an all-night shoot you know lights camera action it was like a hollywood set Bam. and i had so much fun i just got addicted and then i started taking some acting classes at georgetown then i'd been to some seminars and that sort of thing so you know i just had so much fun that i, I just couldn't stop and then i think originally my summer class that summer was canceled because somebody didn't list it and oh. i thought well what am i going to do do this summer so and i thought well gosh you know i had so much fun with that movie i started going to you know auditions and that sort of thing your your ring jingling. Sorry, audition. Sorry. Yeah. So I I just sort of started and it just you know one thing led to another and it's just kind of snowballed and continued. Star Trek Origins. A lot of people who listen know that I'm a big fan of the Trek. How did you like it? How did you get involved? Did you get to meet Bill Shatner? Well, actually, it's a local production um, produced by Michael Dempsey. And I don't know if he has any connection or not, but I'm, obviously he's a big Star Trek fan. So sure, I was actually a doctor, and uh, we had this really cool set. It was I think in something like Sunshine, Kentucky. It was or Sunrise, Kentucky, maybe. Mm. It was way out in the woods. We had to carry stuff maybe a mile through the woods, you know, in a, a sloping terrain, down to this uh, riverbed that was partially dried out. So it did look like another planet. You know, there were no leaves, so these scary trees, and then you know water, and then mud and rocks it was the perfect set so i don't really know much about it beyond that it's still in production i don't even know sounds great <laughs> i could come up with a horse <laughs> walk around a little say hey i'm james Kirk. <laughs> you've done a lot of indie films a lot of shorts anything you really like doing you seem to have a little bit of, can i use the word penchant can I, can I do it? Uh, for comedy, you seem to enjoy that, but some of your roles seem to be somewhat serious. Do you, do you have a favorite sort of genre? Well, I, I like doing both. Um, most recently, <clears throat> I was in, let's see, uh, the one we did last weekend was called Distillery, you know, a little play on the word distillery. Indeed. And I was the distillery manager, and um, I guess it was comedic but serious, you know, so I was kind of the, the strange character saying, how may I assist you? That sort of thing. And then, mm. you know, the young people wanting the tour um, followed me into their doom, basically. Yes, so excellent. Mm. So a lot of serious roles. And then I did some comedy shorts as well uh, several years ago. 
Sure. So uh, something called a series called Stuck With You, where I was a humorous uncle. So we had a comedy writer. It's fun. It's all fun, no matter what. Absolutely. And it's great that you've been able to transition into so many fields, but still they all have a an air of entertainment about them. They're all putting a, an artistic vision uh, or an intellectual message out there and saying, hey, listen, consume, see if you can take something away. Yeah, and there is sort of a crossover between being a musician and an actor because you know, you're know you concerned about you know focus and concentration. You don't want your mind to wander, whether you're gonna play a note on a saxophone or say a line as an actor. It's, um, there's a lot of similarity, I think. Well, and even as a professor, you're basically giving- Acting, it, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Yeah. We just did 50 days of bow ties on, oh, really? on the internet. Oh, yes. Yeah. I missed it. Well, it's still up. You have oh, missed I'll nothing. I'll have to watch yeah, yeah. that and the movie. You, right. You could go to thebooter.com. Just check out the 50 days of bow ties. We've still got more to promote throughout the, the months ahead. So. See, I have at least 50 long ties, but not. I have maybe two or three bow ties. Well, this is true story. The man has been a musician all of his life. Still cannot tie his own bow tie. So when we're done with this interview, we're going to try to rectify that situation. Thank you. No, thank you. (laughs) And if they could ever say, I taught a professor anything, this could be it. (laughs) Speaking of teaching us something, is there anything you'd like to tell the audience before we kind of head out? Any, Any life lessons, anything you want to plug, any tips for living, surviving in the real world, any general dispositions? I'm generally not a philosopher, but I guess I would um, say to live on the edge. You know, I think I've seen several people recently quoting something along the lines of, you know, people who are on their deathbed don't have, how does that go? Um, I don't know how it goes. So I have nothing to say. You have nothing to say? No. Well, you have said quite a bit during this interview, and I am just so thankful that you were able to join us here, Mr. Sonny Burnett. Well, Emery, thank you. It's been a pleasure. And I'll probably think of that quote as soon as we're done. Oh, hey, listen. Send it my way. We'll just overdub. We, we, po- we'll fix it in post. Can you, can you, like, imitate my voice is the question you've done every everyone else tonight. You know, Sonny, it's it's going to take a few packs of Pall Malls. <laughs> and, and Unfiltered, I'm sure. True. And, and another dose of puberty to get my voice... <laughs> that low i mean i'm a little envious actually as someone who works in an audio medium i'm thinking wow to have that deep rich melodic voice well see i don't think i have a deep rich melodic voice i mean there are plenty of friends i have who i I would love to have their voices Mm. yes like this it's so good (laughs) hello how may i help you i always wanted to be a kiosk you know like a mall or something (laughs) hello welcome to midway mall Turn left for women's lingerie. Turn left for women's lingerie. If you're interested in other things, turn left for women's lingerie. You know, I just felt like that needed to happen. And, and men's lingerie, turn right, I guess. Men's. <laughs> I, I think the men's lingerie is in a different kind of a store. Oh, okay, okay. Yeah, I guess it I would don't. Be. I don't know if they they keep that in public. I don't. Yeah. Maybe Victor's Secret. Mm, Victor's Secret. Yeah. Well, if it's not been started, we look into that. Get it copyrighted you yeah. know, before it's too late. That's true. Victor's Secret copyrighted. So don't air this until we have it copyrighted. That's true. We'll we'll do that. Oh, so you're also speaking of copyrights. I'm sorry. You're also a composer. Yeah. I, when I went to Georgetown, I was you know hired as a music theory teacher, and I thought, well, I should be composing some music. So. 
I saw an ad for the uh, James Madison University Flute Choir Composition Contest and entered and won. And then they had it, I think it was maybe annually or every other year. I, I entered it two more times and won every time I entered. So I would never enter it again just because I'm too afraid to now. Sure. Well, James Madison, known for his flute playing, excellent flautist. He was actually playing when he and Dolly were overridden in 1812 with a band of British militiamen taking over the White House and almost burning it to the ground. It was a sad day in American history, but the flute will live on. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you. I didn't know that. We are full of obsequious historical facts here at the Buddhaverse, some which are true, some, well, you can look up for yourself. <laughs> and on that note, we will be right back here on the Buddhaverse. Buddha. Here on the Buddhaverse, we'd like to send a special thanks to musician and actor Sonny Burnett for being on the show. We'd like to send a special thanks to Courtney and our sound engineer Sonny for producing such a lovely program. Also, a special thanks to Quadrants for composing our theme song. And of course, to you, the listeners, for listening in. We are so glad you did. If you haven't had enough of me here, you can also find me all over social media. We're on Twitter, Facebook, and even on Instagram. You can find us at The Booter. We'd love to hear what you think about the show, and there's actually a place for you to comment on our website. If you go to www.thebooter.com, you can find the comment section and let us know what you think. We're also on Pinterest because, you know, men should be on Pinterest. I know interstellar travel is a bit difficult, but the Buddhaverse is always a click away. Mm-hmm.